Welcome to Get in the Herd, a podcast about addiction and recovery brought to you by the McShin Foundation. If you or a loved one are looking for real discussions about addiction, recovery, stigma, advocacy, and most importantly, hope, then stick around. Thanks for joining us. Now sit back and get ready for another great episode of Get in the Herd. Hello, folks. Welcome again to uh, McShen Foundation here in Richmond, Virginia. This is a live podcast, a regularly scheduled Getting a Herd podcast, award-winning, I might add. Today, I'm going to co-host with our fabulous uh, Nathan Mitchell over here. But we got two incredible guests today. We have Jen Michelle Padini. Uh, she is the development director of the Normal National Organization of Normal, and she's also the executive director of the state chapter. And I know I'm messing a lot of political correctness words up there, and I apologize for that. Uh, forgive me. Um, and I have Parker Walton with Canacraft from Pueblo, Colorado. And I'm going to let them introduce themselves, and we'll get Nathan to introduce himself. Uh, Jen, we'll start with you. <laughs> Thanks, John. <laughs> so I am the development director for the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws, or NORMAL. I live here in Virginia, and so I also serve as the executive director of the state chapter, uh, Virginia Normal. And for the rest of our panelists, I use they, them pronouns. Very good. The uh, And we're going to have a great conversation about the new laws taking effect here July 1st in Virginia. Parker, you want to introduce yourself? Yes, sir. My name is Parker Walton. I'm the owner-operator of Canacraft in Colorado. Uh, we've been a recreational uh, cultivator uh, here in the state for the past six years. Uh, we just sell uh, adult use uh, cannabis flour to retail stores across the state for recreational consumption. And we're going to talk more about your engineering of some seeds and how certain strains of the plant can affect and help certain people with certain illnesses and, and as well as what people who abuse them might want to stay away from too, you know, it's avoid the good stuff, so to speak. Nathan, you don't need no introduction, but do it anyways. Hey, everybody. Hey, everybody. Uh, that was a feedback there. Um, Nathan Mitchell, I'm an outreach director here at the McShin Foundation. I use he and him pronouns. Thank you for bringing that up, by the way, um, because we just uh, had our little pride celebration here today. And I, I really love that we, in the recovery space, continue to learn and grow, um, not only about pride and LGBTQIA plus issues, but now we're discussing, which I think is incredible, um, reformation of cannabis law. So thank you for being here today, Jen Michelle, and thank you so much for being here as well, Parker, uh, from Colorado. Well, I think it's safe to say everybody at this table, you know, we, we advocated, fought for, and realized that our marijuana laws were doing more damage than the drug themselves for the last 50 years, and the way it has destroyed our communities, especially our communities of color and those without financial means. And it just, you know, it's, it's a Long time coming, and I would have never thought back in the 70s as I'm smoking weed and thinking, you know, I, there's no way they can outlaw this and treat it like heroin. You know, I could have never imagined 50 years worth of drug laws and, and the destruction it did by banning this, this substance. Now, of course, in my case, because I'm in recovery from substance use disorders, I, I personally no longer use any type of mood or mind altering substances and i don't plan on using them but at the same time i recognize that most consumers they either don't have a problem and the ones that do we have to have to dive into better prevention and recovery support services so 
You know, Jen, I, I'd really just like to hear more of your take on how exciting July 1st is for you. Wow. So it's really been a, a long road to get here uh, in Virginia, Virginia being the first in the South. Uh, that's for certain. And it's been a very intentional path that we've taken to get to this point. It didn't happen by accident. It didn't happen because lawmakers all of a sudden thought it was a good idea. We've been laying the groundwork to get to this point for many years now. So it not only is it incredible victory for normal, but I think it's really a significant victory for Virginians. And Virginians were very clear this year in demanding that legalization take effect in 2021 and not be delayed until retail sales could be enacted. And I think that's you know, it was a really important change that needed to be made in this law. And it is exactly what has happened in every single state that has legalized. There has been the date of legalization for possession. And then many months later, generally about 18 months, that's when retail sales begin. Because really, how fair and just would it be for the state to say, you know what, we're going to make this legal. But until we figure out how to best make money on this, we're going to continue to criminalize people. Yeah, keep crushing people, you know. You know, that's not a – it doesn't look good. It's a terrible public policy. Unfortunately, it's not one we're going to have to endure here in Virginia. You know, I advocated strongly for that, you know, coming out the box. You can worry about Mm -hmm. some stuff later, but quit ruining people's lives by keeping it illegal. I was at a very conservative Ruritan Club meeting last night, and Mm -hmm. I, I brought the subject up to this old guy, and his first reaction was, oh, my God. All, all of a sudden, everybody's going to be be getting robbed in Walmart parking lot. Like, there's going to be this huge crime wave. You know, Parker, you've been in this space for a while out in Colorado. Can you please tell our listeners, don't panic. There's not going to be a huge crime wave. There's not going to be a huge addiction spike. And most of these problems people are worried about is really nothing but smoke and mirrors. I mean, what have you seen out in Colorado, Parker? I mean, not only in Colorado, but all states that have some form of adult use recreational cannabis, all these problems have actually been on a decrease. You know, looking statistically, it's there's less crime associated around it. There's less addiction problems. There's yet, there's less um, adolescent use. Um, so all these fears are kind of unfounded and aren't being backed up by the the actuality of what happens when these these regulations roll out. So, you know, I think it's it's a propaganda that, you know, we've has been pushed uh, for so long. Uh, but now it's time for all of us to start erasing our ignorances when it comes to this plan and start to learn what, what it can truly do and what it doesn't do. You know, I don't think there's an adult at this meeting right now that doesn't support and back good prevention for underage drug use, alcohol use, tobacco use, even sugar use for, for that matter. Uh, Nathan, you run with the uh, prevention spaces around the state. You know, are they are they got any kind of common sense plan or are they just business as usual? What are your thoughts? Well, I know that in the space um, and I'm sure you're aware, too, is that, you know, what's going to be taking place now is is cracking down on how the, the cannabis is marketed and the types of cannabis and how it's readily available, ensuring that the product doesn't look like something a child might pick up and use or making sure that, that the product is safe out there. So uh, really, Jen, Michelle, because you probably know more than I do on this, you know, as far as protections uh, for children, you know, and because this is also important to me, I think for all of us, right? Um, what, what does the law do or where does the law still need to go to ensure that we're, we're not, you know, getting this in the hands of people who don't want to have that? 
Right, so first and, and foremost, while we did enact a very important provision this year, legalization of personal possession, so ending that criminal cycle uh, for adults 21 and older, legalization of personal cultivation, allowing adults 21 and older some, some legal avenue outside of the medical program to access cannabis. What we haven't yet done is enact the other primary component of legalization, and that's regulation. That's the mechanism through which the state essentially takes marijuana off the street corner and puts it behind an age-verified counter so that it can enact common-sense guidelines, laws, rules, regulations that provide for public and consumer safety. Leaving cannabis regulation to the illicit market doesn't do those things. It doesn't keep weed out of the hands of kids. It, you know, illicit uh, dealers don't uh, use third-party analytical laboratories to rigorously test their products. They don't label their products. They don't require identification uh, checks in order to purchase it. And and so we aren't really, other than criminalizing people for for doing this, we aren't providing those. Uh, oversights that we really will be able to once we enact adult use uh, retail sales. So we do regulate cannabis in Virginia already. We have a legal medical program and it's already operational. So as far as how do we regulate cannabis for consumer and public safety in Virginia, those questions have already been asked and answered. And also to the point about marketing to children or making products that you know um, may be appealing to children, we aren't doing that anywhere in the United States. Now, way, 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 way back in the early days, the Wild West of, of Colorado and Oregon, we, we may have seen some missteps, but we have long since learned from, you know, nearly a decade of that experience. So, uh, so it, Parker, what, any, any comments on the prevention side and kids and what you're seeing? Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, just as Jen was saying, early early days in Colorado, it wasn't really a thing. It wasn't anything that uh, was was really, uh, there was no foresight in the regulation as far as how to keep this stuff away from kids and making sure that it's not marketed in a way that looks like candy, uses the words candy, uh, things that, you know, they could accidentally get into. You know, there's been, I read an article about a story in Florida uh, last month or a couple of weeks ago about a, a child who just got into something that just looked like candy and started eating it. Um, so I think since those days, Colorado has done a, had a big push to make sure that they're uh, eliminating the possibilities that, of people being able to market it in those sort of ways, eliminating the use of the word candy, um, any any sort of cartoon characters in your logo or in your packaging is is not allowed any longer. Um, no which more, I think no more Bud Light years, no more Bud Weed years. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, yeah, it, I remember you know, the alcohol industry and tobacco industry. They Joe Camel, Bud Light. Mm -hmm. You know, like you guys. I know you learn from it. Yeah. No. So it's 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 come a long ways here in the past couple of years in Colorado. So you don't see nearly the, the, those those products on the shelves that are appealing to kids uh, that almost are directly trying to market straight to children. I mean, I remember growing up with cigarettes that, you know, that was a big thing uh, for, you know, in that industry. Yeah, uh, so we, we got yeah, we got some questions rolling in here. You know, people want to worry about the, uh, the I guess, smoking weed and driving, you know. And, uh, you know, you hear where there's been more driver impairment and, and whatnot. And to me, like, I remember when I used to smoke weed, if anything, I slowed down. I, you know, I'd be driving 35 on the interstate or something. But uh, what's the driving situation? Parker, you go first. 
you know, I think it's it definitely affects everybody differently, like most things. Um, and it's not something that we have to be ahead of so that it doesn't create the problems. Um, you know, I, I've had personal experiences as a cannabis user. Um, you know, I, I do. I tend to drive much slower anytime that I found myself behind the wheel. Um, I think the problem that is associated with it is that, it, you know, cannabis is going to stay around in your system much longer after use as compared to something like alcohol. So a lot of tests to date have had trouble being able to determine if you were high in the moment or you got high last night before you went to bed and it's still in your system the next morning when you're driving to work. Um, so that, you know, there's, there's some big questions to be answered in that sense. I think it's something that's to be taken seriously for sure. You know, anything that it alters your mind and your thinking, um, you have to be aware of what exactly it's doing when you get behind a motor vehicle. You know, I think that's just, just safety first, but it, we have to make sure that we're progressing the science of understanding this plant and how it's affecting our bodies uh, before we start implementing tests that are creating false positive situations for somebody that smoked two days ago and is not high when they got pulled over. But for whatever reason, that test is showing that, you know, that they have cannabis in their system still. Um, so it's it, there's a lot of science and education that we still need to do for ourselves and understanding a lot of the effects that that cannabis has on everybody's endocannabinoid cannabinoid system, endocannabinoid system, sorry, um, you know, it, it affects everybody differently. So it's, I think it's re a lot of research yet, you know, a lot of research and understanding what exactly is going on before we start to implement too many regulations that don't fit. Yeah. Jen, how do you, how do you overcome the public safety outcry this year in the general assembly or previous years? And this is that I, I see this every time I see an article, you know, what about driving and impairment and yeah, the, click, the public safety. Clickbait headlines are fun, but they don't really hold water in a policy debate. And I really like uh, Robert's question. Thank you for that. Uh, so, in regard to what cannabis legalization will mean for traffic safety, so we were very thoughtful in our research in the Virginia Marijuana Legalization Workgroup, as well as when JLARC, the Joint Legislative Audit and Review Commission, conducted their study on how Virginia should best go about legalizing cannabis. And there was direction to examine the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration's three studies on cannabis and uh, highway safety impacts. And so we weren't just glossing over this. We weren't, you know, taking reefer madness uh, headlines and saying, oh, look at this. We're looking at what NHTSA says and what NHTSA's three studies have said and what your tax dollars have paid three times now for the federal government to get people high and have them operate motor vehicles and see what happens. And NHTSA's analyses and studies are time and time again indicating that we are not seeing, the, uh, you know, an uptick in, um, impairment related to uh, cannabis legalization. And when we are, uh, it is uh, short-lived. It is immediately following legalization while uh, the public adapts to these new policies. I think it's super important that no one ever drive impaired, regardless of substance or reason. That's first and foremost. And, and as far as when it comes to accurately assessing impairment, which is the right word, Robert, impairment, these tests already exist. What they aren't, though, are blood tests or urinalyses or breathalyzers, right? These can demonstrate consumption, but they're not demonstrating impairment. But there are tools out there. There's software deployed around the country, uh, roadside and uh, in, in workplaces that do measure impairment. So if we're serious about measuring for well, impairment... Give, me, give us an example of something they could use and... 
uh, alert meter by predictive safety. That's a product what available today. What the hell is that? Break that down. <laughs> so for it's me. it's software that can be deployed on any smart device, and uh, often in a in a let's say a, an industry environment, it is uh, a new employee comes in and they do a baseline. So we know presumably when we just hired you, you didn't come to work drunk. So we're going to take a baseline measurement, and if you get hurt on the factory floor, you're immediately going to go take the test on uh, the smart device that's nearest to you. Mm. And if it indicates some sort of impairment, is it going to measure impairment regardless of substance or reason, then you can move on to more invasive and more expensive testings of fluids to see what might actually be going on. Uh, the same thing could be done even without a baseline measurement. It can be deployed roadside to see if, you know, maybe you were... So any consumer can get an app on their phone and do it. Do well, it. consumers have access to apps like this, too. There's an app called Druid that a consumer could access. But uh, as far as industry and law enforcement... Without well, um, their lives, the problem, the bureaucrats and politicians want to wait till they can monopolize something, own it, and charge tax money I, on it. And, I think it's more about not being serious about whether or not someone's impaired and more about creating special prosecutorial tools because they're clinging to the this old and terrible policy use, that they've relied yeah, on yeah, for so many years. Yeah, cudgel to keep beating people up. Right. Man. Are you compared are you you're concerned about impairment or are you concerned about you know continuing Control, law, continuing marijuana right, prohibition? Right. Ain't that some stuff, man. Yeah. So uh, here we are we July 1st people can grow their own weed and do their own thing but it's it's illegal to buy, sell, and trade anything, you know, plants, seeds, little little plants or whatever. But you can give seeds away as of the first. Sort of. Not really. Not really. So, How does that work? So there's a new section of code that's taking effect. And pay close attention to the language because it's really important that we use the right language. We have a law taking effect that's called adult sharing. So adults 21 and older, in private, not on the sidewalk in front of a store, uh, not inside of a business, but adults 21 and older in private can share with each other up to one ounce of marijuana without any remuneration. So just like I could have someone over for a beer or a glass of wine if they're 21, you know, you could have someone over and share with them up to one ounce of cannabis in private. What you can't do is sell someone a t-shirt and then give them marijuana bag, bag with it. what you can't do is uh give away seeds in front of a store and you, know, but you can give seeds away in private in private but you can't sell them in private nope can't distribute no remuneration no no any of that parker what what i mean you're you're in the industry right i mean how, how are you supposed to break into these other states industries without regulations and policies and who knows what it's hard. You know, it's hard as a, as a recognized business entity um, trying to expand our operation into new states um, because so, so a lot of this regulation, a lot of this language is very, very confusing. Um, you know, we saw early days in Colorado where, you know, that that whole that whole thing was going on where somebody would, you know, paint you a picture, you know, and sell it to you for two hundred dollars and also give you an ounce of weed. Um, so it's you know, it's it creates it creates almost too many gray areas, in my opinion, where it's almost like you're leaving it open to do it if you're willing to take the risk. Uh, but the people that are trying to walk this straight and narrow on it find it find it a little bit more hard to, to work their way into this this sort of newly regulated space because of some of this language and some of this wording on some of these laws, because um, at the end of the day, you know, it's it's 
it's up to it's up to you know a, a court's interpretation of it when it really comes down to it you know it's there's nobody there there's not a lot of places where we could go and get these answers questioned or get these questions answered more so than us just interpreting the the law and making sure that we're trying to walk the right side of it before we get to before we get back to jen here you have some experience with the court you want to briefly share one of your court cases <laughs> yeah so we were sued under uh, federal rico uh, about four years ago um, so our neighbors uh, sued us because we were uh, operating a cannabis cultivation, which is federally illegal. Uh, we were licensed and everything through the state, but it was kind of a loophole where they were able to take us to federal court and sue us under civil RICO um, because we were uh, you know, doing something that was federally illegal. Um, so, you know, it's 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 things like that, that, you know, it's, it's well, how did the court case end up. Uh, we actually we won at the end of it. Uh, we went yeah. to a trial by jury in Denver um, and found unanimously what they were that what they were saying was that our legal operation was decreasing their property value. Um, so them living next to an illegal cannabis cultivation, a, a, a federally illegal cannabis cultivation was actually hurting the property value that they were on. Um, so it was a four year long case that went back and forth with dismissals and appeals. Uh, finally went to district court in Denver with a trial by jury. Um, and we were found unanimously not guilty after about three days. And that property doubled in value since the case started. Absolutely. I'll bet, yeah. you I'll know, bet money on that. No, it has. And, you know, that's what we were able to show through the case is that, you know, the fact that they had the same agricultural, a one agricultural zone property that we had right next to them, that they were able to operate a cannabis cultivation and in turn that increased their property value. You know, I was talking to Jen well, the week before last and I was I was really stunned by your knowledge and, and the depth of what you knew. And you were raising your hand a minute ago because you got answers. You know, yeah, what I mean? and I think that's so important. Like it can be really difficult to understand these new laws when they pop up. And so what we've done at Virginia Normal is provide an easy to read, easy to understand, frequently asked questions page for not only legalization, but we've had one for many years for the medical program as well. And if people have questions, they can reach out directly to us. And I'm answering questions live every Friday on Facebook at 4 p.m. Man, I think that's an amazing to have such an advocate at your fingertips. Now, you mentioned medical marijuana. Mm -hmm. uh, Parker, you know, I've done a little research in this, and I understand the Israelis have been doing this since the 60s. You know, they never missed a beat on medical marijuana, the uses of marijuana, uh, studying marijuana. That's got to be exciting for a guy like you, Parker, to know that it's going to be a whole new industry and a whole new day for you guys. Any thoughts on that? No, it's extremely exciting. You know, I came out to Colorado uh, in, in pursuit of this of this career, so to speak, uh, with, with to be completely honest, with dollar signs in my eyes. You know, I saw I saw it as a means to it's a it's a blossoming industry. There's going to be a lot of different avenues that are created through this. But ultimately, what I saw when I came to Colorado was the medical benefits that that this plant gave to so many people that I, you know, I knew that cannabis was a medicine, but I didn't really truly realize how much it could change people's lives. Um, the one thing that really hit home to me time and time again was the, the whole idea of a medical refugee, uh, somebody or some, a family that was fleeing their home state where they had lived their entire lives, where they had their friends and families and jobs, where they had to leave their state in order to go to a new state 
Colorado at the time uh, in order to get the medicine that actually helped them or their child or their wife. Um, and it was just, you know, it was time and time again, I saw stories about this and it was just heart wrenching to, to see the absolute benefits that this plant provided people on a medicinal level. Um, and they just weren't ever able to access it in these states because of outdated laws and regulation. Um, so and that, that really changed the way that I view this plant and the way that I view this industry. Um, you know, I think it's not only, I mean, right now it's the, the hype on it is on the, the recreational use of it. I don't think that the, the medical side of it gets as much uh, popularity as it should, because I mean, this is this is is an alternative medicine for so many different things, uh, so many different symptom symptom reliefs for so many different problems that people have. Um, the opiate crisis. Uh, this is, I think, this is a means to to completely eradicate that if this is handled properly. Um, so it's just there's so many avenues, and then you get into the industrial hemp side of things, where you know that's a whole nother side of things that um, that isn't talked about a lot right now, but the the, the the avenues being opened up by cultivating this plant, not, not only for medicinal use, for recreational use, but then also for industrial use. I mean, it could, it could replace so many industries that we know. Plastic for what I'm seeing, if they learn how to scale up that use. Absolutely. But, you know, let me, let me throw a couple of things out here. I, I, I read a lot and I, and I, and I read both sides, left, right, you know, bias and everything. But the, the couple things keep coming up that I believe is very real. Number one, if, if you use opiates as a ways of pain management, the, the recent studies and data is pointing toward a 50% reduction of those needing opiates for pain were able to switch to some form of cannabis use. Now, imagine pharma gets irritated at that because they're not selling these drugs. And then several people I know opened up treatment centers in, in uh, California you know, high sobriety was one, but what they discovered was that addicts on all these other really terrible drugs, over half of them by the time they left rehab were off of all drugs. And I think, see, people say, John, you're a recovery guy. How can you be in this space? I said, are you kidding me? I want to know everything I can about this, the good, the bad, and the ugly. I want to, you know, because I see so many lives destroyed with all these other drugs and substances out there. And, and I've yet to see one person overdose on cannabis. You know, I, I, the, only, the ones I see ruining their lives are the ones that get hemmed up with the bad laws and policies and criminal justice system. So I'm, I'm very excited about this. And as a caveat, because I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a selfish person, <laughs> is uh, to this day, we can't get, I can't consider the recovery space getting help from, like, let's say the alcohol industry or the pharmaceutical industry, Okay. Obviously, the pharmaceutical industry wants to kill us. You know, just look at the OxyContin epidemic and all these other drugs they're trying to say is the best thing to do instead of not using drugs. And but the cannabis industry, I see that as an opportunity, a gateway to have real credible relationships that bring real resources and real solutions to the substance use disorder space. So I'm really excited about that. But I, I, I'm talking to Jan and Parker. I think you guys, it's important. You people, it's important to understand that, you know, these relationships moving forward, you know, we don't have to experience the stuff we experience with alcohol and pharmaceutical. And and so I'm really excited about this conversation, but I do take heat for this, you know. So and Nathan's <laughs> over there. He's got to clean my, my mess up sometimes. What are you thinking, Nathan? Well, no, what I, what I really appreciate about this conversation is, you know, John, you really helped me see – 
this issue as important to recovery. And and I, I actually have a question for you, Parker, after after I make this point. But you know, when I first got here, you know, we started talking about um, decriminalization in the you know last year and now legalization this year. You know, it sort of sat in the back of my head. Okay, well, it's a criminal justice. Yeah, let's get that out. But what I've seen, you know, we had I think two individuals in Prince William County last year who died from fentanyl poisoning from fentanyl laced weed, you know? And so what I'm seeing is, you know, that's, that's, that's becoming a problem across the country. And so when I saw that, I realized, you know, wait a second, we need to take care of the criminal justice aspect. You know, when I looked at the figures for when, when we're talking last year, you know, three and three out of, what is it? Three to one individuals who are arrested for uh, marijuana possession are people of color. Is that, is that a number? Yeah, it's upwards of, of four to one. Four to one, yeah. yeah. I mean, which is ridiculous. In Virginia. In Virginia, right. And, and of course, we see that across the board with substances, you know, not, not just weed. We see that, you know, people of color uh, being disproportionately affected by substance use as well, by being affected by bad drug policy. So recognizing that, recognizing that when we can regulate the product, um, when we can get the criminal justice system out of it and get help to the people who actually need the help and not just criminalize the people who are just using it medicinally or using it recreationally, then, then we actually, it becomes a recovery issue. It becomes a, a very important recovery issue. So I wonder for both of you as, and Parker, because you're out in Colorado, how has the recovery community embraced what Colorado has done? And, and, and how about here in Virginia, other than us, of course, you know, how has the recovery community embraced this new normal? Parker? Um, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of strange because it's in Colorado, you know, cannabis is, there's no taboo associated with whatsoever. Um, so it's, 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 it's kind of hard sometimes to, to think about, you know, comparison of back in Virginia, you know, I was born and raised in Virginia, you know, comparatively to Colorado, it's, it's not even a thing, you know, it's, People, the use of cannabis is just a normal way of life in, in Colorado for a lot of people um, and a lot of places it is. And it's, it's become there's no taboo associated with it. So in, in, in that, you know, the recreational use of it, the use of it for whatever benefits that it might provide are, you know, are really just open to, to anyone's interpretation and how they feel about it. And there's really no backlash on it because it's such an accepted thing. Um, and I think that's important. I think that, you know, the, and that's that's helped by regulation. The more people that see it around, you see dispensaries on the corner stores, uh, you know, you see more and more people talking about it. It just becomes more natural in society, just like uh, alcohol consumption is. You know, most people don't even know how to, what it means to have fun to go out and and have fun with their friends without drinking, you know, consuming some sort of alcohol where, you know, in Colorado now it's, it's becoming more of a, 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 it's always, it's been more of a thing where it's more socially acceptable. So all those sort of things, as far as use and recovery, it's, it's, there's never been, an, I've never seen anybody really putting their nose up at it or making a big deal about it overall. Yeah, I would, I would, I would echo that largely. I think that the recovery community, has has long known this and has long embraced this as a harm reduction method. Mm. I would juxtapose that with the substance abuse industry, which has much different opinions. Mm. Also, I have to uh, go back to what you mentioned, because I do remember those stories about Prince William County, and I responded to this accordingly. And what I've asked for repeatedly is, can someone please provide a toxicology report that mm. demonstrates that that is in fact what happened? Because we do hear this, oh, now the marijuana is going to be tainted with fentanyl claim a lot. Mm. And we've yet to actually see any 
real base to those claims. Um, you know, we might consider was someone, uh, you know, was someone arrested and what did they say they had consumed? So I don't want to perpetuate reefer madness myths unintentionally. Right, right. So by all means, if there's a tox report, you just go ahead and send that our way. We'd love to see it. You know, I've never seen fentanyl poison in a Suboxone strip or a beer or wine unless somebody at one time used did it. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Right. So I imagine with the uh, legalization and tracking of marijuana that that goes away. I mean, to be fair, we haven't seen that at all. Right. We've heard Story. wild, unsubstantiated claims. But we haven't actually seen that happen yet. You know, and then then somebody might be a, a car wreck that got THC in their system, but they might also have alcohol in it, you know, mm-hmm. methadone in it and, and other substances, too. So it's really a lot of it is myth. A lot of it is hype. It's hysteria and it's driven by a special interest and, got it. and you know, political naysayers. So I think we all have an opportunity moving forward to really clean up what's real and what isn't and get the media to understand that and report truthfully. You know, so I'm excited about that future. I think Jamie has a really great he, question. He, he does. And I was looking at that. And Jamie, you asked the question, how will this affect the recovery society when using it as a MAT? And, and right now, these uh, from what I'm seeing, like we have an addiction doctor mm-hmm. and he's all about doing a, a prescriber, a card. But the doctors, they want to protect their license mm-hmm. and their credibility. So they're going to be very, very conservative and, and I would say somewhat strict. So, but at the same time, if you're just a consumer that can, you know, go in and get weed legally and all of a sudden half them people aren't going to be wanting these other drugs, right. I think that's a big hit myself. Now, of course, farmer ain't going to like it because they, they want to sell huh. the drug. That's neither here nor there. Uh, so as you and I were talking uh, about, there are some really good studies that are uh, reflecting the the usefulness of medical cannabis therapies for those who are using that. Other, that's right. And so if you're, you know, paying $2,000 for that person to get the first shot and it, you already know at least half of those people are not coming back for the second shot. Right. When you allow them to access medical cannabis, not even provide it, but just allow them to access it, you're getting a much, much, much higher return for that second shot. Nearly everyone is coming back and you're getting better outcomes as far as opioid cessation altogether. So it, it really they, does they, make they, sense. They need to hear that. Now, does Medicaid pay for medical marijuana? Medicaid doesn't. We are exploring how we might be able to address that at the state level, but it's it's not covered by insurance in the United States. I think it's really important to, to scale that up. And Robert made a statement earlier saying that the uh, somebody in the uh, 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 one of the, the big dogs, I think that was it right there, Clarence Thomas with the Supreme Court says that federal laws against cannabis may no longer be necessary. Uh, Parker, what are your thoughts nationally as far as the federal laws go? You know, I, I, I feel going through my RICO case, I, you know, I have a certain certain uh, feeling on all of this, um, you know, to be to be given a license to operate in Colorado and then to be able to be able sued under federal RICO for doing that. Uh, really left a bad taste in my mouth, um, and I think I, I think that uh, Clarence Thomas came out with that just a couple of days ago, actually, and that that really got me excited um, because I think it's, I think it's a step in the right direction. I think a lot of things that he said, basically saying that if if the federal government's going to allow 
the states to be guinea pigs, not his words, those are mine, uh, guinea pigs for this sort of movement, then, you know, they should have more responsibility and skin in the game as well. And they shouldn't be able to continue to prosecute people the way that they are uh, because of it. Uh, so I think it's a huge step forward for, you know, for, for Supreme Court justices and stuff to, to really start to look at this stuff and to say, does this make sense on where we are? Um, you know, it, it's very scary to, to kind of see the federal state the federal government stance on on cannabis legalization with what they're allowing to happen across the country it's it's almost like they're setting it up for themselves where they're not going to come into it until they know that they can control everything from a to z um, so they, they are they're kind of sitting back and seeing how all this is happening so that when they get their chance to kind of jump in the game that you know it's they're they're able to do whatever they want with it they can just i never do i don't i don't never recall supreme court justices commented on things like that that's very rare that they will have an opinion like yeah that. that's pretty rare but really his opinion reflects the opinion yeah, of, of the, the vast majority yeah, yeah. of the vast majority of americans yeah nearly half of all americans and he was a conservative judge the point here, if I remember he still correctly. is yeah, yeah. <laughs> and nearly half of all americans live in a state where marijuana is legal for adult use mm. virginia is going to join right well, welcome virginia. on the first and it's really incumbent upon congress to get out of the way of states to remove marijuana from the federal controlled substances act and allow states to set their own policies free from federal interference uh, all but one U.S. state or territory has a law that is in conflict with federal yeah. marijuana policy. Now, let me, let me, I want to throw all three of you a question, and, and Parker can go first, and then Jen, and then we'll go to Nathan. But I noticed that, like, after talking to Parker and getting to know him a little bit and his brother, Matthew, I feel like I'm talking to, like, the Jerry Garcia of the marijuana and seed industry. Like, I mean, I say that in an artful sense. These guys are artists. They, they, they love what they do. They do what they love, but they're very educated, very smart people. And then I talked to Jen, and, and you got all this great policy roadmap and how we got to where we're at. And then Nathan's always down there trying to advocate for resources for the recovering community. And it's like at some level, you ask yourself, who in the hell is making all these policies and decisions? Because it seems like a lot of them. They could be made a lot better and smarter on the front end than trying to build a plane as you fly it. And uh, <laughs> we're trying. I, I know, but but like some of these, you know, like this six tier system coming in Virginia, and the way they're trying to pay attention to each little category that yep. might that might be involved, and yep. like we got to roll out on the first and. And there's some clarity on what you can and can't do, but there's still some vacuums, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, how the hell are you supposed to do this if you can't do that? And who makes this policy up and who's in charge? And and there's like, I can't really get to the, the man behind the curtain, you know what I mean? There's always like a wizard or two out there. But uh, Parker, we'll <laughs> go with you first on, you know, who should be helping with these policies and who shouldn't be helping with these policies? You know, I think first and foremost, you know, there has to be a strong understanding of the, the physiology of this plant. Um, you know, I think we, we have to talk to the people and we have to get the opinions of the people that have spent the time working with this plant. Um, you know, one of the things that's been most frustrating in, in going through the year, the six years or so of, of operating a, a cannabis business in the regulated uh, state of Colorado it's been really frustrating because it's a lot of these laws do not make sense. A lot of these regulations do not make sense to the farmer, 
which ultimately, you know, I, I we, you know, I would consider myself a farmer of this, of cannabis. And a lot of times, a lot of these regulations are, are just put up roadblocks in the way of producing a very good, clean product consistently that shouldn't be there. There, there are rules and regulations being written by people that at the end of the day, just do not understand the cannabis plant. Um, it's still so highly frustrating for me that the vast majority of people don't realize that marijuana and hemp are the same exact plant. It's the same exact plant. It's this idea of THC concentration that makes a separation there. But at the end of the day, it's cannabis sativa. That is that is scientifically what marijuana and hemp are. So they're the same exact plant. But here we are in this country where we have one set of regulations for hemp and then one set of regulations for marijuana. But at the end of the day, it's the same exact plant, which just opens the door for so many gray market, black market sort of transactions that just don't need to be necessary. It's just a complete misunderstanding of the science behind cannabis. Um, so first and foremost, I think people that work with this plant, that have a passion with this plant, um, that that want to 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 keep pushing this forward, that have, have experience with it, those are the ones that should be consulted on this as experts. Not not just corporate America trying to, you know, grease the old special interest wheel and whatnot. I'd also like to note, you know, one thing that it doesn't really come up in conversation much about the whole federal legalization side of things is that, you know, as a small business owner in this space, um, it makes complete sense to me why the federal government hasn't done anything with this just simply because of a little thing called IRS tax tax code 280E. Um, and 280E, anybody that wants to do a, a Google search on it, just it does not allow cannabis operations to operate as a normal business. So we have to pay taxes as if we were an illegal gambling op operation or something. Exactly. Like that. So, you know, we're, we're placed into a tax code and a tax bracket and tax liability that is far more, far more substantial than any other normal business has to overcome. Um, so right now, I mean, the IRS is making money hand over fist on these cannabis operations. And to be completely honest, it's it's a little criminal. Uh, so I don't, I don't see them wanting to change that because in the moment right now, they're making way more, more money off a of tax revenue of it being illegal federally than they would off of regulating it. Well, I'll let the big boys dive into that. <laughs> Jen, thoughts on these policies, committees, who's making laws? I mean, good Lord, <laughs> you, you up in the dens. Uh, yeah, I sure am. I'm all up in there. Uh, so <laughs> Parker couldn't agree more about 280E, and that is why uh, it's important for anyone watching to send a message to their members of Congress in support of the Safe Banking Act. Mm -hmm. You can find that on the normal website at normal.org slash act. While you're there, you can also send a message in support of the MORE Act to remove marijuana from the Federal uh, Controlled Substances Act. Now, as far as who's at the table here in Virginia, I think fortunately for Virginians, normal is there. Uh, advocating for common sense policies that provide uh, not only public safety, but most importantly, consumer safety. Um, we don't have uh, large corporations uh, dominating the conversation here. We do have a medical cannabis industry, and they are definitely providing the sort of industry experience and um, considerations that we're looking for to sort of comply with what's working. Well, they did bring the Republicans to the table a couple of years ago to get medical marijuana done and enough to get it done. I'm not going to say that they right. did. Well, I'm going to say that we, we did. did. All right. I, got you. <laughs> I think that one company showed up and wrote one check and they're not, I'm not going to pat right. them on the back for it. So, you know, largely that prior to having operational cannabis companies here in Virginia, 
there, and this is the same state after state after state, I'm sure as Parker can attest to, it, it is advocates, it is organizers that, that are doing this grassroots work to change laws. And then after that, you'll see industry come in and, and get involved in the game. Um, you know, no different here. Nathan, how are we going to get some of these tax revenues for the recovering community <laughs> instead of the same old system? By the, <laughs> epidemic, by the addiction epidemic gets worse. With this bill? With this bill, right. With the, with well, this with this bill. bill so, you know, as, as you know, we, we fought hard to get that 25% carve out. And, and, and the language changed as the versions changed. And, and it, it didn't change in a way that I was thrilled with, that we were thrilled with, because it went to 25% uh, went to DBHDS. And, and, and bless their hearts, you know, they're doing the work that they do for prevention and treatment. The original bill, you know, said 25% to, um, I don't remember the exact language. organizations, it's, recovering yeah. community Which was the language that we Which never gets for. no right. state tax dollars anyways, you know. Yeah. Right. And, and, and that, 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 you know, they did the little shuffle and, and what happened. So now we got to fight to continue to, we got to fight a, to ensure that that money actually does go to the CSPs to, to mm -hmm. DBHGS through the CSPs, but then it goes to effective, um, providers. effective providers. You know, we're, we're not just, you know, prevention is one thing and I, I get why we do prevention. We need to do prevention. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. We need to tell a true message. We need to, to put a true message of what, what substances can do, you know, and, and, and treatment is, is absolutely vital, but the long-term effects of the, what recovery is, you know, is not accounted for in that. So we need to continue to deliver the message that not only is recovery possible, whatever that is, and recovery can include cannabis, you know, it's a, it's a pathway that, that I, I'm starting to, I'm, I'm embracing, you know, from a personal standpoint, um, I'm recognizing that it is good for a lot of people. You know, and so that's 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 great. I'm glad, I, you know, me, this little recovery advocate who's been in this space for a little tiny bit of time. Wow, I can see the light. This is great. You know, so now, OK, now I can see why, you know, having a safe, regulated product, mm -hmm. right? Having a um, having the criminal justice system out of the mm -hmm. way, the black market out of the way are great things, because then we have, like you said, safe consumers, you know, so so that and a public a public safety. So th this is very, very vital. So we need to continue delivering that message. You know, I'm a person in recovery. I practice an abstinence-based recovery. That means for me, I'm not interested in cannabis right now. You know, I do a day-by-day -day program, one day at a time. You know, so I don't know what it's going to look like tomorrow. But for right now, I'm not advocating for my own personal use. I'm advocating for the safe use of others. I'm advocating for the 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 for, for less, the word I'm thinking of is deleterious effects of, of, of what can happen when people are mass incarcerated for, for this, for, for essentially a plant, you know? Um, so, so that's what we need to do. We need to continue telling those stories and continue being out there and finding natural partners to tell these stories. You know, I'm so grateful that, that Jen, Michelle, that you're here and Parker, you're here because, you know, we can talk about this in a safe space and say, you know, this is good for so many reasons for so many people. So that's that's i think yeah and, and the money i mean the money man that that we just need to keep going down there 25 percent treatment and prevention look and you know who showed up with their hands out screaming and grabbing for that cash so well parker you got the eyes and ears of the of the great jen michelle padini here you know what message would you like to send? Because apparently she she's a great advocate here in the state of Virginia, moving forward for all these policies and commissions and whatnot. You know what what great message could you send her during this podcast moving forward? 
you know, I think uh, personally, I think that we, we all should look as, as we're pushing regulation forward in new states, we have to look at what the, the previous states have done before us um, or before whoever's doing it. And I think California is a massive warning to how they rolled out Proposition 64 um, to the rest of the states that are looking to regulate cannabis. Um, you know, it's it's one thing to regulate cannabis and to just assume that that's going to eliminate the black market. But we've seen the exact opposite happening in California. Um, and it's because the regulation has been geared towards corporate organizations, which squeezes out the little guy. And at the end of the day, uh, the little guy, the mom and pop shops are the people that are going to be most passionate about cannabis cultivation. They are going to be the ones that are going to do it, whether they're licensed or not. So if we don't allow these people to cultivate uh, legally and have a piece of the pie, so to speak, then they're going to go do it on the black market and they're going to continue to do it in the black market. And I think California, we've seen that where the black market in California is stronger than it's ever been because of the regulations have squeezed out so many operators that would that would do it, whether it was legal or not. Um, so they're they're just doing it on the black market because they're taxed out of it, so to speak. So I think it's very important to always remember uh, where this where this came from, where this plant started and the grassroots community that got this plant to where we are today, uh, because without those people, we wouldn't be here today. Um, and pushing forwards without them is an atrocity and they're not going to allow that to happen either. Um, so, you know, a big push in making sure that we we quash the black market the way that we want to with regulation is is making sure that everybody can play at the end of the day that wants to play. Sounds like a strong message. Yeah. And, and you know, first, let me assure you, Virginia's regulatory model is in no way based on California's. <laughs> uh, we're very intentional and thoughtful and are doing essentially the opposite of what went down when our medical program was constructed. Uh, our medical program was stood up under the previous majority and is a limited licensure model. It uh, requires vertical, requ is vertically integrated and requires, you know, uh, uh, upwards of $25 million per facility. Uh, to, you know, we only have four licensees in the state. And so what we're not doing with adult use is that. <laughs> what we are doing is uh, breaking the, the licenses down into uh, smaller licenses like we see, you know, working better across the United States and ensuring that there is, uh, that there are ample on ramps for small businesses, for those looking to enter the legal space, uh, including uh, by creating the cannabis equity, equity fund so that, you know, since we know that historically small cannabis businesses don't have access to capital easily, uh, unless they're uh, big, you know, big companies, white companies, males that already have access to this capital, we're ensuring at the state level that those ca that, that capital is available and and really trying to create those on ramps so that we aren't seeing what we are seeing in California. <laughs> and I think another uh, another huge caveat of it, and I haven't dove too too much into the you know the Virginia regulation. I think that distribution license uh, is a very dangerous one. Um, I think uh, you know removing the power from the cultivator to you know wholesale their own product, um, and, and you know mandating they go through a third party person, another company to handle that product sale. I think that that's a, that's a scary one. Um, and I know that Colorado hasn't had anything like that to date. Um, and I, I'm very, very thankful for that. And I think that Colorado has one of the 
uh, one of the healthiest uh, recreational markets in the state because they, A, they did not allow big business to come in from the beginning and B, they allowed every business to operate on their own. Um, you know, if you wanted to just be a cultivator, you could sustain as just being a cultivator uh, without having to rely on somebody to sell your product. As I've just heard so many horror stories about, you know, those companies leaving the, the farmer out to dry, so to speak, at the end of the day. Um, and that's that's the one thing I always worry about when I see that distribution license. You know, I, I remember traveling in Alaska a couple of years ago and, and this old community, this old gas station turned into a place where this family was growing weed in the garage bay area and out front where the little counter was that you, you could buy it. And it kind of reminded me of like a winery you mm -hmm. might run across in, yeah. back in Virginia. And I can just imagine a winery in Virginia making their wine, growing their grapes, but yet you, you got a representative from a distribution company at the cash register, you know. Yeah, so I, I agree with you, Parker. And now keep in mind that in Virginia, we have socialized alcohol. Our, our, our alcohol program is run by the state, mm -hmm. and we do have distributors. And there was an intent to model our cannabis regulations, not on our already existing regulations for cannabis, but on alcohol, which was absurd. Um, now, we do have a wholesaler license uh, proposed at this point. So not a distributor, but a wholesaler. Um, and, th and that... I don't think that I don't think the last part of that uh, dream is going to come true. You're, I think you're going to see that farmer, that that farmer's son, that, that can you know, grow behind the counter, right, there. right? Because while there is an in, there is an appetite within the legislature to prohibit uh, large multi-state operators from coming in and dominating the new adult use market from day one, there is uh, an intention to allow multiple licenses to be held by smaller businesses and less so to be uh, obtained and gobbled up by, by big business. But you see what I'm saying? I mean, you look at these breweries, like they got the breweries all mm -hmm. over the city. They can brew their beer, sell it with burgers and dogs. There's not a multiple level of licensing that I know of. There, there will be the ability for for small businesses to, to grow the weed to, and sell it to right have there. those multiple licenses and do that. There will be less of the ability for a big company to come in and take. I, I hear you, but like still, that. these wineries do not have to have multiple licenses to do that. You know, that's when I say the alcohol hey. bottle. That's what I was thinking. I was thinking of those people, the, the mom and pop shops and whatnot. It's but, not the same. I mean, it's not, you know, we're not going to regulate it like alcohol because it's not alcohol. But it, it's, it will be similar in that that sort of farm-to-table approach will be acceptable for small businesses. Well, that's encouraging for some people, I would say. I think that's the most important thing. You know, once you try to take, I mean, this plan is for the people at the end of the day. And once you try to take it away from the people, it's it's only going to create issues. Um, you know, there's a, there's an underground grassroots community that has existed for a long time through prohibition with this, and it will continue to exist a long time after prohibition as well. And that's where the passion is. You know, that's that's where most of the knowledge and experience is currently, you know, until we start to get this stuff in more mainstream, you know, we have to, we have to respect where this came from and the people that have put their lives on the, on the line to date uh, to continue pushing this plant to where we have it today. Very good. All right. We're running out of time. I want to get some last words in. Nathan. Well, I, I, I do want to note, note uh, what Robert has set up here that Connecticut and New Mexico are legalizing also on the first. Is that uh, what, what with the uh, national normal, are you planning going forward? I I'm taking it for gospel that he's correct on this. Robert usually is. Um, but what are you all, at the national level, 
doing to advance the cause here? And do those bills look similar to what we're doing in Virginia? Uh, they're <laughs> no, I mean, ne never is, is this never, <laughs> never look. It's a loaded question. I'm sorry. It really is. Uh, <laughs> marijuana laws are different state to state to territory to district to state. But um, yeah, this week it is Connecticut, New Mexico, and Virginia. Uh, some states are on July 1st and some are uh, today. Uh, the 29th, I think New Mexico was actually today. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, what are we doing? We're continuing to keep the pressure on Congress to end federal prohibition, to get out of the way of states, to uphold states' rights, uh, and and let states, frankly, continue to set their cannabis policies free from federal interference. Awesome. All right, gang. Well, uh, Parker, last words. What do you got, buddy? Uh, there's uh, I think, you know, always ask questions. I have so much to say. You know, as far as cannabis is concerned, always ask questions and, and never be afraid of our, your own ignorance. Um, you know, I've, I've been I've, I've been a lover of this plant for a long time and I learn something new every single day. And as regulation progresses and as we get this out to, to be more mainstream, there's more scientific studies being done on it and paid for. The, the more and more we're going to learn of it, you know, where we are right now with this cannabis plant, we're at the infancy as far as what we understand about this plant. There's a lot left to learn. So just always stay hungry for knowledge. Very good. Jen, last words. Yeah. Uh, let normal keep you up to date on all those studies, all those policy changes. Every Thursday, we're delivering fresh to your inbox uh, the top line stories in cannabis law reform, any clinical studies that are coming out, uh, any trials that are being completed, what's new, what's now, what's most important for you to know uh, in, the, in the fight to change marijuana laws. So be sure you head to normal.org slash subscribe. Make sure you're getting that every Thursday. Very good. Now, what do you, do you think is going to affect 420 any? I mean, the fewer people are going to go to jail. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. That's a great answer, man. We'll be celebrating 7-1 now. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Just please celebrate inside. Inside. There you go. Nathan, well, I appreciate you letting me take over today. Appreciate Appreciate you being here to take over. We got anything coming up this week? So, yeah, no, we're going to continue this conversation because this is a very important conversation. On Thursday, well, tomorrow tomorrow we have Women Wednesdays. So we'll have uh, Joyce and we'll have um, uh, Dixie here on the show doing, doing what they do. Um, we have a surprise guest I'm not going to reveal yet, but more will be revealed because I think it should be an interesting show. On Thursday, we have Shannon Taylor, and she, yeah, so we have the Henrico County's Commonwealth Attorney to discuss the effects of the new law on the criminal justice system. So uh, we're excited to have Shannon back to the show, actually, um, and to be here in this space with us. So that's that's what we've got going on. You know, just to touch on perhaps Shannon's conversation Thursday, which ain't happened yet, but I was talking to a head judge of a, of a circuit court in a, in a jurisdiction last night, and you know, I asked him, well, what do you think that's going to do to the courtroom, the court cases with the probation, paroles, and all that? And he said, you know, it's going to be the, as far as I'm concerned, everybody's going to have to work it out. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But, you know, follow the letter to the law. That's, well, but, yeah. if you're, but like if you're in drug court and you can't be drinking, you know, you ain't going to be allowed to smoke weed either for recreation, you know. Maybe. Yeah, well, well, you know what? It depends on the drug court. That's true. So yeah. we're going to be, we're going to see a lot of, we're going to have a lot of conversation moving well, forward. And, so. and I also know that Henrico County, you know, I, I'm in touch with Henrico County uh, probation and parole right now. And we had a discussion 
couple days ago. They're having a discussion today right. about what they're going to do with their probation, uh, their, their individuals on probation. So we're going to get more guidelines from them and how we talk to our, our participants here who are involved in the system. Um, but going forward, and like you said, you know, it just really depends on on, on the municipality and where, where they're on probation. So more more will be Good revealed. Lord, man. We've got a lot yeah. of this. But, but I'll tell you that one of the biggest things, I'm sorry, I know I keep dropping this point, but one of the biggest things is how does this affect individuals who are currently incarcerated for, and that's the thing well, that has not, let it, some out. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't let yet. them out. That, that, that got taken out of the bill. It requires reenactment. So so we, we, we do have a long way to go on this to ensure that the equity of this bill trickles right. into the the, the courts uh, into the into the jails and prisons we'll and get legal action in here yeah. or uh, so we have a lot of work to go on folks that, so. all right gang we're just out of time man thank you parker so much <laughs> for coming on today jen nathan uh more later gang uh tune in tomorrow two o'clock thank you justin good job buddy Honesty Liller. I am the CEO of the McShen Foundation and a woman in long-term recovery since May 27, 2007. I have not used drugs or alcohol. Thank you so, so much to the Richmond Times Dispatch and all of our voters for getting the Herd podcast. Those podcasts are amazing. Not only has it helped thousands upon thousands of people in their recovery, as well as family members, but it has helped me in my personal recovery. I get to listen to them now in my car through Spotify and iHeartRadio. And it's just really, really important for us to be innovative in the addiction field and the recovery community. So when COVID hit, we had to be innovative. You know, we really had to think of like, what can we do to reach people that cannot go to 12-step meetings? smart recovery, faith-based, whatever, um, that we're shutting down constantly. So we were innovative here at McShin. Let's start podcast. So with Todd, John, Alex, um, and some other staff, you know, we all just kind of jumped in who can do what. And um, with Todd's lead and John's lead, the podcasts have been amazing and we're still doing them today. So I want to thank you for all of your votes and all of your energy and all of your support of our mission of healing families and saving lives. Thanks.